Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Buckle up, strap yourself in, and get ready. Welcome to The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Story coming out of the UK that we're going to follow up uh, on later on the program today is the proclaiming of the divinity of Christ a hate crime. Now, just think about that for a moment. Just think about that for a moment. Proclaiming the divinity of Christ a hate crime in England, the home of the Church of England. And here's what happened. And we'll have the story for you in detail later, but I'll give you a little bit of it, a taste of it. Lord Pearson of Rannoch, who's a member of the British House of Lords and a former leader of the UKIP party, United Kingdom Independence Party, they're the ones behind Brexit, asked in the House of Lords whether Christians who say Jesus is the only son of the one true God could be arrested for a hate crime no matter how much it may offend anyone of any other religion. And the government representative, who's also a member of the House of Lords, refused to agree proclaiming the divinity of Christ would never be considered a hate crime. They would not say, no, you cannot be accused of or convicted of a hate crime if you claim the divinity of Jesus Christ. So you could be, charged with a hate crime. And we're going to be speaking with um, Sam Hales. He's the editor of Premier Christian Magazine and a commentator on Premier Christian Radio in the UK. So that's coming up. And we'll have some time for some calls from you on that. Also in Cape Town, South Africa, there's a tremendous crisis looming. They are uh, they're preparing themselves for what they're calling Day Zero of the city and the region experiencing its worst drought in a century. Three consecutive winters of no rain. The dams are drying up and the contingency plans are rolling out very slowly. It has something to do, I understand, with the governing party and the opposition party. The opposition party in South Africa is the one that's in control of the region where Cape Town is located. And we're going to be speaking with Giovanna Gerby from Cape Town in South Africa. She's a resident there and a reporter. She'll be joining us later on in the show. They're expecting that April 21 will be day zero. According to the mayor of Cape Town, no water. The dams are almost out of usable water, and what is left is evaporating the summer heat. Average temperature now 35 degrees Celsius daily. So a little bit of what we have coming up. Oh, we'll also be speaking with, because it could happen tomorrow, from what I understand, it could happen tomorrow, that we'll know whether the Equitas log suit against the government 
whether they'll appeal the decision by the B.C. Court of Appeal. And the court decided that the lawsuit had really no um, no reason to carry on. Well, will they appeal? Perhaps we'll know tomorrow, but we will be joined by Major Mark Campbell of the PPCLI and uh, from Edmonton, who lost both of his legs in an IED attack in Afghanistan. He's one of the principals in the Equitas lawsuit. And what I want you to hear from Major Campbell is, remember, I think it was two weeks ago, we played you some clips from Bill Kelly at 900 CHML in Hamilton, the chorus radio station in Hamilton, interviewing the prime minister who was appearing in the city at McMaster University that afternoon. And Bill asked Mr. Trudeau about the lawsuit and about the... Um, the social contract federal governments have with members of the military. And the prime minister provided an answer. And I listened to that answer and I thought, I'd like to hear what Mark Campbell, what Major Campbell has to say. So we're going to find out today. Unfortunately, we're unable to reach the first guest I had booked. Just can't get through to J.J. McCullough, who is a Vancouver-based political writer, cartoonist, and uh, media commentator, and I wanted to talk to J.J. Campbell about the uh, his column that appeared in the Washington Post earlier in the week, and uh, his column is titled, A Phony Islamophobia Panic is Ruining Canadian Politics. So what I can do is I'll read J.J. McCullough's column that appeared in the Washington Post, and then we'll have a little time to uh, to talk about it, whether you agree or disagree with what he wrote. So here's what appeared in the Washington Post, and maybe you've seen it. A lot of people have commented on it online. And J.J. McCullough wrote this. During the lead-up to the 2003 Iraq War, back when invading that country was a more popular idea among Canadians than many care to remember, I recall observing an encounter at the bus stop near my house between a group of middle-aged white folks, perhaps three or four of them, and a hijab-wearing Muslim woman. I didn't see how it began, but everyone was arguing about the war, with the Muslim woman against and everyone else for. No one was making particularly good points, but it was nevertheless obvious, through the white folks' sneering, dismissive tone, that they regarded the logic of the Muslim woman with far more suspicion than was warranted simply because of who she was. There was no go-back-to-where-you-came-froms or anything like that, but it was a visibly tense conversation made all the tenser by one obvious variable— was I witnessing Islamophobia? It was certainly an unpleasant swirl of politics and culture in which many diverse sources of social discord, violence, patriotism, religion, race, and immigration were present, either explicitly or, explicitly or just below the surface. Without being too presumptuous, when Muslim Canadians experience episodes of social anxiety, I imagine the triggers often resemble what I witnessed, awkward encounters with representatives of the majority that leave Muslims feeling devalued or marginalized and hyper-aware of their otherness. The world being what it is, however, most of us would prefer Islamophobia to manifest itself in a more sensationalistic, even cartoonish way. The Canadian Parliament certainly resorted to fairly cartoonish language of its own when it passed a motion last March describing the scourge of Canadian Islamophobia as, quote, an increasing public climate of hate and fear, end quote, which only heroic government action at its highest levels could redress. When last week an 11-year-old Muslim girl from Ontario claimed she was attacked out of the blue by a bigoted monster who literally tried to cut the hijab off her head with scissors, this desire for cartoonish Islamophobia was satiated. 
Politicians from the Prime Minister on down tumbled over each other to tweet messages of sadness and remorse on behalf of the whole country, naturally, uh, that such wickedness had been allowed to transpire, though a barely hidden subtext was that they all pretty much expected it. After a couple of days as the cause celebre of Canadian woke Twitter, the hijab chopping story was declared false by the Toronto police. It did not happen, the news release bluntly stated. It thus joined the ranks of such other scandalous non-events as the grocery store Islamophobe in London, Ontario, who wound up being a Farsi-speaking in treatment for mental illness, or the Muslim man who got beat up by a slur-yelling assailant in a Whitby Park bathroom, only to be later deemed unreliable by police and prosecutors. There's something unmistakably perverse about this bizarre appetite. Many Canadians, particularly those on the left or in elite positions, seem to have for tales of outlandish Islamophobia, an appetite that causes otherwise sensible people to turn off their faculties for caution and skepticism and adopt the credulity of a supermarket tabloid reader. At best, they gobble up such anecdotes as a variant of so-called decay porn, in which weird cravings for tales of a hellish world can be satisfied only by increasingly outlandish stories cooked up by fabulists. At worst, these are the many gulf of Tonkins in the mind, emotional pretexts that rationalize backing politicians or legislation that erode free speech due to process or national security in the name of fighting some unprecedented enemy. I'm just going to finish this, and then we'll talk to J.J. McCullough. As the Toronto Sun's Anthony Fury observed, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has a long track record of erring on the side of radical Islam, a pattern seemingly born from a larger tendency to frame Muslims as creatures without agency and deserving reverence for all claims of persecution, no matter how dubious or ambiguous. This, in turn, animates many of the man's political marquee uh, political promises, from a generous intake of Syrian refugees to eliminating judgmental language from the Canadian Citizenship Guide to ending bombing raids against the Islamic State, all of which have at their core an implied need to redeem the Islam-skeptical character of Canadian society. Phony or exaggerated charges of Islamophobia, in other words, are not merely victimless non-crimes. They inflate the resolve of a certain flavor of progressive whose political agenda aims to sacrifice much of the traditional liberalism in the name of bigotry, course correction, as well as the denialist ignorance of the reactionary right, like those who peddled conspiracy theories about last year's mosque shooting in Quebec City. The end result is a society whose politics have been agitated uh, to polarize around the Muslim issue in a deeply inaccurate, unserious way. In conclusion, J.J. McCullough writes, it was particularly unfortunate to see conservative leader Andrew Scheer, who will face an uphill battle to unseat Trudeau next year, among those scrambling to denounce the scissor attack long before any hard facts were known. History has offered plenty of cause for suspicion. As the left seems poised to learn absolutely nothing from this episode, there is surely ample political ground to be seized by any politician brave enough to argue that the worst stories of bigotry are not automatically the truest, and the peaceful integration of Muslims into Canadian society, whatever the obvious challenges, must begin with a greater presumption of their host's goodwill. So, that's what J.J. McCullough wrote in the Washington Post column, A Phony Islamophobia Panic is Ruining Canadian Politics. When we come back, J.J. McCullough will join us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. 
Don't let his bark fool you. Roy has a softer side, too. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Really, it's a very interesting column to read. Just reading it out loud reminded me of how, how how this column really hit home when I when I first read it. J.J. McCullough, writing for uh, the Washington Post, his website is jjmcculloch.com. Uh, J.J., thank you so much for the time. Uh, let's just jump around a little bit here because I read your column, as you know, on air. Where do we? Where does Islamophobia fit? into the political spectrum, political dialogue in this country. Because as you pointed out, and we've been talking about, Prime Minister Trudeau, Premier Wynn, Mayor Tory, Andrew Scheer, the Conservative Party leader, immediately jumped in and had opinions before we ever knew that the story was true or false. Yeah, and, and sort of what I said in the column was that there seems to be a sort of perverse appetite on the part of a lot of people in Canada to believe that Canada is this deeply Islamophobic country. And not only a deeply Islamophobic country, but a country that in some ways sort of needs to atone for its Islamophobia. And as I said, you know, a lot of Trudeau's uh, political agenda has been animated with a sort of implied redemptive quality. So it's like, you know, we bring in a lot of the Syrian refugees, we change the citizenship handbook so it doesn't denounce, you know, the quote-unquote barbaric cultural practices. You know, the prime minister goes to, to mosques all the time and does photo ops and this kind of thing. You know, he wishes everybody a happy Ramadan and this kind of stuff. All of this kind of stuff operates on the basis that, like, Canada sort of needs to be fixed in some way. That, like, mm-hmm. Canada is this kind of incurably Islamophobic society and that we as Canadians and certainly our Canadian leadership class has a sort of moral obligation to sort of atone for that and to prove how much they love Islamic people, how much they love Muslims. And I think that as well, the other part of that is that when stories of, of alleged Islamophobia come to, the, uh, come to the front, what our leaders have an obligation to do, they think, is to just be very uncritical and to just, you know, fall over themselves to denounce these stories as quickly as they possibly can to prove their anti-Islamophobia bona fides. Well, the non-leadership class is really fed up with it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that Canadian people feel like that they are a tolerant bunch. I think that we think that we are people that judge people on on the content of what they do, not on their religion, not on any other sort of arbitrary variable like that. And yet, and so when our leaders sort of create this image that Canada is this Islamophobic, bigoted place, I think a lot of people are very resentful for that. In the same way that a lot of Canadians are resentful when Canada is sort of positioned as this racist nation, Canada's position as a country that, you know, hates the Aboriginal people, you know, all of these kinds of things. I mean, to most Canadians, that does not accurately reflect their heart, their spirit, their vision of what they want this country to be. And yet, our, so much of our political class operates on the opposite assumption that, like I said, that the country is sort of incurably bad and requires, like, very dramatic redemptive action to, to vindicate it. Is there a political price to be paid for this? Will, will Justin Trudeau pay for it? And did Andrew Scheer make a mistake by jumping up immediately and uh, speaking his same concerns or the concerns that mirrored those of Trudeau, uh, even though we, nobody knew whether the story was fake or real? Well, I mean, this you've... you've basically illustrated the problem, right, is that if you do have a problem with the way that, that Justin Trudeau 
comports himself on this issue, well, what are you going to do? There's not really an alternative. No. Andrew Scheer has basically tacked to the exact same line. And I mean, it's even worse in, in your province in Ontario, where, you know, Premier Wynne and, and uh, Patrick Brown basically are singing from the identical playbook on this issue. I mean, because of the way that the Canadian political system works, you're really just, you can have like one or the other. Like, you don't have the opportunity to elect a, a sort of outsider person or someone that has heretical views on these sorts of issues. Because, you know, the second someone comes along that says sort of contrary things, well, what happens to them? They get shut down, they get kicked out of caucus, they get, you know, denied a nomination and whatnot. They get accused of being racists. Yeah, absolutely. And then then they can sort of get isolated and marginalized. So this is one of these issues where it just seems very very difficult to get a dissident perspective. I mean, Andrew Scheer, I think, really sort of buys into this idea that, that sort of the Conservative Party in particular has great amends to make with the Muslim community, sort of really has to demonstrate in a very ostentatious way how unbiased and un, unbigoted and, and whatnot it is. And so, yeah, it, it is, it's quite discouraging. Uh, you started the column uh, by relating the uh, exchange that you witnessed between a group of whites and a hijab-wearing Muslim woman. How does that fit into the overall perspective? Um, well, you know, I, what I, I don't know if you, you read it in full. I'm sorry, I just sort of caught... I did. I read, it, I read it in full, yeah. Okay, so you read it in full. So you know that at the beginning I, I sort of recounted an, an anecdote that I remember quite vividly, where, you know, I just kind of saw a confrontation between a bunch of white folk and, and a younger Muslim woman who was wearing, you know, the, the hijab. And it, it just seemed to me that it was kind of a tense encounter, and I, and I felt for the woman. I mean, I... I I didn't take her side in the political argument they were having, but I did have a sense that these people were kind of being dismissive and, and probably treating her as, as someone whose opinions on the, on the debate, which was a debate about sort of Middle Eastern politics and the war, because of who she was. And it's like, you know, that's, that's not great. And I think that we can all concede that that's not great. And I think we can all concede that we do have subtle unconscious biases and that we do sort of view arguments differently based on the person who's making them. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said... Like that kind of thing, that kind of low-key sort of cultural anxiety, cultural tension between the different groups of Canadian society is much different than sort of saying the kind of thing that like, you know, a crazy man with scissors trying to cut a hijab off a young girl's exactly. head is in any ways like that. That is, I don't think, a representative uh, experience at all. And yet a lot of people were, you know, when this story first came out, they were saying things like, well, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all that this kind of thing would happen in Canada. You know, Canada has this serious Islamophobia problem. And this is what happens a lot with these sort of phony hate crimes, is that it's, what's most revealing is just how credulous people are to accept them. And it really sort of says something about the warped way that they view common people, ordinary people in this country. It's All right. kind of like evil, violent monsters. JJ, I have to stop it there. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope we can, uh, we can get you back. For sure. Thank you so much. All the best. JJ McCullough on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. His website is jjmccullough.com. When we come back, Scott Newark has a lot to say about uh, the kids of Joshua Boyle and the kids of the Cotter family and more. Stay with us.